Scripture. Thank you, Bill. We're going to sort out some uh, technical difficulties we've been having this morning. We had, uh, we had five mics to put batteries in this morning. We got four of them, and uh, that can be a little difficult sometimes when midway through service, we swap mics out, you're trying to raise the song leader, and you realize you're raising the bass, and it's, it can be quite a mess. Uh, I, I want to tell you this, though. Our sound guys do a fantastic job uh, doing a lot of different things that all happen concurrently. Uh, they're back there changing inputs for our live stream. They're advancing the slides. They're adjusting microphone levels. It's a lot of work, and uh, I, I, I can say that firsthand. When I was preaching from my office for about six months, uh, you guys remember the technical difficulties we faced on a, a fairly regular basis. Uh, uh, it's a lot of work for one person to do all of those different things. And so um, I appreciate our, our AV guys for the work that they do. And I just realized I left my clicker down here. See, I can't even keep track of a remote, let alone five different inputs on a, a computer. Um, I want to remind you that we have our family retreat coming up. Uh, this is something that we haven't done for a couple of years, and I don't know about you, uh, but I, I enjoy going out to camp and being with the family of Christ, being with my brothers and sisters. It's a wonderful opportunity uh, that we don't always have you know, on the calendar. Life gets really busy. Uh, we have two kids playing baseball right now, which means... Every single night of the week, with the exception of Wednesday, is booked up with baseball. And then Wednesday evening, we come and we, we have our evening class. We have children's classes and youth group going on. And so uh, we, we have a pretty full calendar. And I look forward to Wednesday night because it ends up being a refreshment, an opportunity to connect with people that maybe I don't get the chance to spend time with midweek. But I'm really looking forward to our family retreat. And I want to encourage you, if you can, register before next Sunday. Um, That gives us an opportunity to know you're going to be there, to let camp know that you're going to be there so we can feed you. Um, There's no cost associated with being there. If you are uh, coming as as a family, we're going to feed your whole family. And your lodging is covered. Uh, We have Dave Blanchard, who is uh, a a former resident of the Northwest. He was the youth minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. He served all over the country in youth ministry for about the last 20 years um, and is just, he has just completed his MDiv in youth, family, and culture. Uh, this is someone who's got a lot, of, a lot of head knowledge, but I can also tell you he's got a lot of practical wisdom. Um, Dave is a really, a really wonderful guy. Uh, he's been a mentor to me uh, he's going to be coming and speaking at Manifest, uh, which you know our congregation is pretty heavily involved in. Um, and I want to encourage you. I think that Dave is going to make it worth your time to come and hear what he's got to say. And even if you just want to come out and play games and eat food and spend time in fellowship, there's a lot that just spending time together does for us as the people of Christ. Um, so that's the sales pitch, and I want to go ahead and move forward into the sermon this morning. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? 
This is one of those stories that in Scripture we know really well. Uh, It is one of the most evocative images in all of the biblical text. It's one that we come back to over and over and over again. And as John Germain will point out to you, uh, there's some interesting brackets around this passage, probably in your Bible, uh, that note that it's not found in the earliest manuscripts of the Gospel of John. Now, I want to be clear. I, I think it belongs in the Gospel of John. I think that this is something that God has made sure became uh, a regular and and persistent part of the scriptures over the course of history, that we can have attestation to it early, that it's a, a part of the Gospels. We know that within the first century, people were quoting this story and sharing it with one another. This was, or not the first century, I should say the second century. Uh, they were sharing this with one another. They were talking about it. This was something that they appealed to as an image of the nature of Jesus and his mercy and grace and kindness. But the story starts so strange. You see, they've just been at the Feast of Booths, which means they've all set up these tents and they've been camping outside and they've you know, been celebrating a remembrance of their time in the wilderness and the way in which their, their ancestors had lived as God guided them through the wilderness. And this chapter begins by telling us, or this pericope of Scripture begins by telling us, that they all went back to their own homes. It was the end of the feast. If you remember last week, it was the last day of the feast. They all challenged Jesus or they're accusing Jesus, rather. They don't confront him face to face. They all go back to their own homes. And the next morning, this happens. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. The implication of the text is that they've all come straight from home. They've just left their houses. This is the first thing they decided to do the morning after the feast. And they've decided to do this for one specific reason that John tells us. This, they said, to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Think about that. This woman that they're pulling out and bringing to Jesus' feet, they're not concerned about what's actually happened. They're not concerned about her as an individual. They want to test Jesus. These are the same people who who refuse to ask him what he's about, what he's going to be doing, why he cares about the people of Israel. If you remember last week, that was the key point. Have you talked to Jesus? Nicodemus asks the crowd, do we try a man without first hearing him and judging his works? The answer here is yes, we're going to put him on trial. We're going to test him. We're going to look and see who he is, not based on a conversation, but on a situation that we've fabricated. Now, I think this woman really was caught in adultery. I mean, that's what the text says. John believes that that's actually the case. But again, they don't care about the actual details of her life. She's a tool, a prop, a convenient opportunity to catch Jesus in a trap. And Jesus isn't going to play their game because Jesus isn't about using people. It says, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin 
among you be the first to throw a stone at her. This ends up becoming a phrase that we repeat all the time, right? Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. This is, this is so ingrained in our understanding of who we are as a people. But we always read this and we wonder, what is it, what is it that Jesus writes in the sand, in the dust there? What are the words that are significant enough for him to take a beat. They present the challenge to him, and instead of answering it immediately, he bends down and he begins to write. And I think John is intentionally vague here. Maybe John doesn't want to put words into Jesus' mouth because he doesn't know what he wrote in the sand. I couldn't see it. I was off in the back, and so I'm not going to tell you what he wrote because I don't know. Or maybe John is vague specifically to get our minds questioning, what what could Jesus write in the sand to these men? I've spent a lot of time trying to figure this out. Uh, Some people say that he's writing the names of the men in the sand, each and every last one of them. Some people say that he writes down the specific individual that committed adultery with her. Some people say he simply wrote, where is the man? There are a lot of speculations that happen here, but one of the things that I've I've been pondering lately is the book of Hosea. Completely separate from studying the gospel of John, I've been spending a lot of time reading the book of Hosea over and over and over again. And fortunately for me, when I went to Pepperdine this last two weeks ago, um, there was a session on the book of Hosea, and, and I, I had listened to it multiple times on the plane, on the way down, uh, audio recordings, and, and then I, I got to hear this wonderful session on it, and it was just beautiful hearing the way that, that the individual who was describing it talked about the poetry of God's language, describing himself in, in a way as a husband who has been spurned, a husband who's been cheated on, one who's been mistreated by his spouse, the nation of Israel. And God puts Hosea in a position just like him. In fact, Hosea tells us, uh, sorry, that's not correct. That was not the slide that was supposed to come up. Well, I'll tell you what God tells Hosea. God tells Hosea, I want you to go and take a wife of whoredom. And she will bear you children of whoredom. I want you to take for yourself a cheating wife, essentially, a prostitute as a wife, one whose faithfulness is not in question because you already know she's unfaithful. I want you to take a wife like that for yourself. And so he goes and he finds a woman named Gomer. They have three children. And uh, Kyle and Rebecca, if you're looking for baby names, read the book of Hosea. Actually, Kyle made that joke earlier this week, and so I'm just stealing his joke and pinning it back on him. They name the children, or Hosea names the children, and and if you haven't read the book, you should go read it. But like a name like No Mercy, right? Uh, that's that's a pretty rough name to give a child. And so he does marry Gomer. They do have children. Whether or not they're his own is in question. It just feels like. God has stacked the deck against Hosea. I want you to marry a cheating wife, one who sells herself 
for money. And Hosea knows why God is asking him to do this. But until it happens, Hosea doesn't quite feel what God feels about the idolatry, about the the reliance on other nations that Israel has taken up for themselves. You see, the people of Israel have decided that they're going to make alliances with other nations. They have adopted the worship practices and routines of these other nations. Uh, They go and they offer sacrifices to the Baals, the, uh, the foreign gods. And they find themselves thanking these other nations and saying, you know, the reason that we're doing so well is because these other nations are supporting us. You know, we, we've got a lot of money. We're protected on all sides. God, God might be taking care of us, but really, isn't it wonderful that these other nations and these foreign gods have our back? Now, Gomer leaves Hosea. just leaves him. And she goes off and she continues to prostitute herself. And God tells Hosea, go and buy her back. Bring her back to you. There's a question as to whether or not before Hosea married Gomer, she had been a prostitute. I think the implication is she was before. She was during her time. She was after her time with Hosea. Hosea goes and he does bring her back. And as Hosea continues his ministry to the people of Israel, he he begins to speak for God, a message that God has given him. He says, my wife has gone and she is delighted in the gifts that those who have laid with her have given to her. And said, isn't it wonderful, all these gifts that I've been given, these perfumes, these foods, these rich foods. I'm so protected and cared for. And the whole time she doesn't know that the gifts are from her husband. That even as she's been unfaithful, the husband has been sending her the things she needs, the clothing that she wears, the food that fills her stomach, the protection that she requires. And the whole time, she's attributing these good things to the men who are not her husband. And Israel's done the same thing. And this is the wordplay that God is using, the way that Hosea is communicating God's feeling of being cheated on by the people of Israel, the way in which God is saying, look, I am your husband and I will protect and care for you. I love you. They want to use you. And I will reclaim you. I'm going to let you go. I'm going to let you pursue the things that you've chosen to pursue. And you will see how horrible and awful it is to be apart from me. And even then, you're still going to struggle 
to ascribe the good in your life to me, but I will go and reclaim you. And I will bring you back. And I will love you. And now there's some mixed metaphors that happen in here because God also describes Israel as his son uh, that, that was living in wild and reckless abandon. Now, if you want to know where Jesus might have got the, uh, the idea of the prodigal son from, it's possible, first of all, he's God, so you know, he inspired the scriptures, but it's possible that the prodigal son is sort of a quotation of the book of Hosea, like a summary of parts of the book of Hosea. This wild and reckless son who is brought back because of the favor of the father. But in the middle of all of this, sorry, I went on a little bit of a tangent on Hosea. I'm preaching on John this morning. I remember that. In the middle of the book of Hosea, there's this moment where God says something very unusual. I want you to think through the Ten Commandments. There's one in there about adultery, right? Thou shall not commit adultery. And there are a whole bunch of laws built onto that in the Mosaic law about how to handle adultery. And already the Pharisees have, have quoted that, or they've paraphrased it in their own terms to make it sound even more like they have a case against this woman. But in Hosea, God tells the people of Israel, I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. Now, there's more to that verse. Don't go look it up yet because we're going to cover it in just a moment. Hosea 4, 4 verse 14, the first half of it. I'm not going to punish them. We don't know what Jesus wrote in the sand. I want to be clear on that. There's a part of me that feels what might have been appropriate in that moment was for Jesus to invoke the entire story of Hosea by bending down and writing this verse in the sand. Again, I don't know this for sure, but every one of the men that's standing around there, these Pharisees, would know the book of Hosea. In fact, because it was an oracle before they go into exile, this was a tremendously important passage to them. Why did God send us into exile? Well, we don't have to question that. We know. Why did God allow us to become captive? We know. We don't want to make that mistake again. So Hosea becomes a significant prophet after the exile. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. And I picture Jesus bending down and writing this in the sand. But it continues, John again. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. Now, if you remember what Jesus told them was that he who was without sin could cast the first stone. And the stone would... Would be thrown. I'm not going to throw rocks, I promise. The stone would be taken, probably bigger than most of these, but, you know, I, we don't have that big chunky gravel in the back lot there. The stone would be taken and it would be thrown at the woman. This would be on the small end of the sizes of rocks that they would choose to throw. 
And they would throw rocks repeatedly until she was dead. That's what the law of Moses, by their interpretation, commanded. And Jesus tells them, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And, and as I read that, I begin to think about, you know, other ways in which we talk about our sin. And these are the stones that I probably deserve. These are the rocks that should probably be thrown at me for the times that I have done the wrong thing. And so the question is, Jesus is writing in dust, right? Where are they getting the rocks? Where are they finding these stones to cast? Because here's the deal. They come prepared for the stoning. There's not going to be a trial. They found her guilty already. And they're prepared to cast their stones. And maybe they very carefully selected the ones that they're going to throw. And some of them are big. Some of them are small. But every one of them has an intent and purpose behind it. But with Jesus' words and whatever he began to write in the sand, Jesus then continues to write in the sand. And it says, when they heard it, they went away one by one, stones in hand. Beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. It's tradition in Hebrew culture to quote a portion of a scripture to invoke the whole thing. That's why sometimes we attribute some really bad theology to some words that Jesus says on the cross. Jesus cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting the Psalms. And if you go and you read that same Psalm, what you see is that the author begins in desperation, and throughout the course of that Psalm, he slowly yet surely comes to the realization, I'm not forsaken. God is not far from me. And there are many times that Jesus quotes a small piece of a larger text with the intention of drawing to mind everything that's being talked about there. When Jesus calls on the, the parable or the sign of Noah, or not Noah, Jonah, oops, calls on Jonah, he doesn't tell the whole story, but immediately everyone in the crowd could recite it word for word. They know the story of Jonah. And Jesus invokes the text to make a point without even having to tell the whole story. When Jesus is on the cross and he quotes the psalm, he is invoking the text to tell a bigger picture story. Even now on the cross, I am not forsaken. God is not far from me. He is not unjust in his dealings. Sometimes we use that passage to say that God and, you know, that the Father and the Son uh, were separated and that the presence of the two were completely apart from. That's not what the text is saying. Jesus is invoking an entire psalm to explain what's going on. So Jesus begins to write in the dust, and if, 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 which we're not told, 
he invokes Hosea, everybody knows what comes next in that passage. That's the wrong passage. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes, and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. God's judgment to Israel. You want me to punish your wives and your daughters for their sexual indiscretion. But you are the cheating wife, he says. Every one of you, the whole nation, is an adulteress. Because not one of you is without sin. I'm not going to punish them. We don't know that Jesus quotes Hosea by writing in the sand. But I feel pretty firmly convicted that every man there could feel this story in their bones when Jesus says, let the one of you without sin cast the first stone. What do we take away from this story this morning? How are we supposed to understand it? What does it mean for us? Why why this text? You know, there are a lot of passages that when you're preaching through a larger text, you get to and you're like, I don't really know if I want to preach this this morning. I don't know if if this is what God really wants me to deliver. I'm not sure that this is... I'm not sure that this is what I want to do. But the thing is, as we read the Bible, we oftentimes find things in Scripture that make us uncomfortable. And if we don't, we're probably reading it wrong. If the Bible doesn't rub against your grain, you may not be engaging it correctly. So here's what I want to tell you this morning. As I read John and I read Hosea, I find myself firmly convicted of two things. The first is this. There are a lot of adulterers in our world. Hosea tells me so. A lot of people committing adultery, not necessarily against their spouse, but certainly against the God who has provided so much for them, who has lavished them with gifts that they've attributed to other sources. The second part is this. Not a one of us has a place to judge and to cast the first stone. And there are a lot of us that are carrying around stones and we could name and label every single one as to what it is that that stone indicates. Maybe this is a lie that I told 10 years ago. Maybe this is a boulder that I've been carrying around because of tax evasion. I don't know uh, what your stones would be. But every one of us has a stone with our sin written on it, a thing that is, is something that we've carried around, and oftentimes we are ready to cast the stones that we've been carrying at other people. And Jesus says, those stones aren't for her. 
If you're going to be casting stones today, maybe you should count whose name is on that one. I'm not saying that we need to be lax in our understanding of the morality that God calls us to. But I am saying that we are not called to be the judge. We're not called to be the jury. We are most certainly not called to be the executioner. Every one of these men leaves. They all get up and they all walk away. Not one of them has decided that they are without sin. They may not understand the authority that Jesus has, but they understand the authority of the Scripture. And in Jesus' hands, that authority takes on a whole new meaning. And Jesus tells the woman to go home. Sin no more. What if our response to those that we encounter in this world who are adulterers, liars, murderers, what if our response was Jesus' response? I am also sinful. Jesus doesn't say that. I do. I am also sinful. I have no stones to cast except the ones that I deserve myself. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are merciful. We have left you. We have cheated on you. We have attributed the good that you have done to us to others. And this morning we confess that we carry around a big old bag of rocks. And it is not our job to use those rocks to cause harm to others. But you've actually called us to lay down the burden that we've been given. And to exchange it for another burden, for the cross. To bear our cross is to bear the burden that others might carry. To love them well, to walk alongside them, to give up self in their favor. And Father, I pray this morning that not one of us would would drag someone out to humiliate them and use them as a tool for our own purposes and our own ends to show how righteous we are in the face of so many others. But instead, that we we would love them well and confess that we do not judge them because we are in need of judgment ourselves and are not judged by you, but instead forgiven. Help us to invite them into that forgiveness. To help them know Jesus and the love that he has for them. It's all this that we pray in his name. Amen. If you have need of the church this morning, if you are hurt and broken, if you are crying over the things that are happening in your life, if you want to seek baptism, if there are ways in which we as a congregation can bless you and encourage you in spiritual growth, we want to be a part of that, and I want to encourage you to consider that. I'm going to be at the back of the auditorium this morning. Our elders are here, and they would be happy to pray with you. We've got some ladies this morning that would be willing to pray with you as well. If you need that, we want to, we want to encourage you to seek that out. We'll be in the back of the auditorium. You can join us as we stand and sing.